Thanks. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And like I have tried to explain over the last couple of 1 Timothy, uh, this is the some of the passages that I expect to have emails and conversations over with some of you. Um, this is the one where it tells you ladies to be quiet. And so I'm always, I'm always excited to the truth with you all. Um, and I just expect that we're going to walk through this. I hope to explain it properly. And if something is missing in my explanation, then please come talk to me. Um, this is not something that we should be uh, throwing things at me over. I hope to show you the what's going on in the passage and what's really happening here and the freedom that is actually happening in this moment. Uh, but I also know that I'm fighting against a lot of years of cultural and um, bad things that have been done in the church and to ladies. And so I just want to ask you to be gracious with me and then we will talk about it further at length. But I hope I can clear it all up because I'm hoping to be that good. But I know I'm not. So anyway, let's pray. I'm going to pray mostly that none of you have sharp objects to throw at me. And then we'll go from there. We're back that we um, can see the, the great care that Paul is having for this church in Ephesus. And Paul apart in the church, and that we can see that everything that's happening in your word is drawing us back to creation and how it's supposed to be. Um, I hope we can see that, Lord. I know that we have tackled lots of uh, controversial, tough things as a church in the past, a great family regardless, and so I pray that we can continue to say that, and we can help others to see that too. We love you. Amen. So I'm going to read it. Thank you for that loud amen. That's encouraging. Thanks, Bennett. I appreciate that. <laughs> he ducks down. And then we'll start to break it down. Start eight, I believe. Thank you. I might be slightly nervous over this one. Join themselves in respectable apparel with my braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what godliness with good works. Missiveness. I do not have authority over man, and was deceived and became a transgressor. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. A lot of landmines in this one. <laughs> Isn't there? Uh, salary today. The first scripture, how we read scripture. Um, you are not allowed a person to just make up whatever you want. It is not a good enough argument to say, well, Jesus didn't talk about that. You're right. He didn't talk about nuclear power plants. He didn't talk about nuclear warfare. He didn't talk about submarines. He didn't talk about whether or not we should uh, have certain things in our country, how it should be organized. We don't, you can't just say Jesus didn't talk about it. That's not a good argument. That's not fair. It falls apart in a heartbeat. Because just if we did that, 
actually, because we could really go to the sheep and the, and the goats and the dividing, and we could really go for that, and I don't think anybody really wants that. But we can't just say, just because Jesus didn't say it, you can't talk about it. That's, that's intellectual dishonesty. What we do have is a couple methods that we read through um, the Scriptures by the lens of. There's two ways to look at a passage. There's two ways to approach Scripture. One is through exegesis, and the other is through eisegesis. And I've mentioned this before a couple years ago, I think. That when you come to read the Bible, you come to it not empty of everything, but with a mind that says, I want to know what the text says, and I want the text, I want the Scripture to inform me. I don't approach the Scripture with my heart and my mind to inform the Scripture. There's a difference. Um, The difference is, with an exegesis, you're going to pull the meaning from the Scripture. This is the Word of God. This is the truth of God. I want to pull from it what is there, what's right in front of my face. Eisegesis is when you come at it with your own preconceived notions, what you like, what you want. Um, Think of it as a science experiment. If you are really following the scientific method then you would do all of the research, and whatever conclusion comes out, that is the truth. Eisegesis is when you do a scientific method, and you already have the conclusion, and you're trying to push the data and push the research to form to your conclusion. A good scientist will have a great hypothesis, will have a great understanding and idea of where they think this is going, and when the research proves out that that is not true, a good scientist will go, well, I was wrong in my assumptions. This is what the research has proven. A bad research shows that I'm wrong, but I don't like to be wrong, so let's try to fudge the numbers or figure this out. I'm going to keep pushing until I get my result that I want. That's the difference between an exegetical study of Scripture and an eisegetical study of Scripture is I'm going to come to the text and say, I want to pull out what God has for me. I think that's what most people want. Unless, if it's something you don't like, then you're going to work real hard to try to get around what's right coming out of the text in front of you. That's dangerous in a a multitude of ways across any spectrum outside of 1 Timothy 2. If you really want to know what God is saying, you've got to pray, dig in, and say, I want God to give me what he has, or already what I want, and so I'm just going to go to the passages. I mean, you can find a pastor or a website or somebody that's written a book to agree with anything that you want. That's not that hard. People have written them all over the place. Um, That's not what we want to be as believers in the Word of God and the salvation of Christ that comes through his sacrifice on the cross. We want to follow what God has for us. So, first, anytime we read a passage that's hard, that I don't like, just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. You have to mean that that's what the text is saying. Like, you can't, it goes both ways. I really like this one. Well, does it really fit the whole totality of the scripture? Well, no. Well, then you need to be quiet. Like, that's not, that's, that's later. All right. History. And this is just basic concepts in biblical interpretation. It's a big word called hermeneutics. It's how we approach the text. The principle of harmony is that we are going to look at each part of scripture in light of the whole Bible. Not just one little section at a time. I'm not going to take this one. I, I'm not going to take the, this verse that says a woman should be quiet, and then I'm going to make that the ba- the foundation of my entire life. And anytime a woman speaks, and oh, wait, the Bible says you should be quiet. What's well, terrible? That's a terrible hermeneutic. We don't see that anywhere in the Bible. 
We don't see that fleshed out in the women who are around Jesus. We, we just got done going through the Gospel of John and talked about the beauty of Mary and the female disciples who were there. Like, at any point, did Jesus say, be quiet? At any point, did he say that? At any point, did he say to the woman of the well, hey, hey, woman, sinner, please, don't talk to me. I'm the Messiah. The woman's about to be stoned to death. They're coming after her. They're going to kill her. Does he look at her and go, uh, you know, just, just, just be quiet. Let me handle this. No. That's not how Jesus was. It's not how he functioned. And so you, when you look at the totality of Scripture, even Paul, you'll see here in a minute, most people miss a simple word, and they don't understand the cultural context of it, and they just blow by and say, Paul is a misogynist. They don't, people don't just, they don't read it right. So the principle of harmony is we're going to look at the entire Scripture to make sure this jives and this is really what's happening. We're going to take one verse and claim that that's everything. The principle of history is that God has revealed this truth in the context of specific times in history and culture. That there are some things that, yes, even though it's ordained and even though we see it in the Word of God, that's a cultural issue. Those fall away, but the principle of harmony shows us what's revealed to be a lifelong held truth. That God has said it, and we can't just wipe it away because culture changes. We'll see that when it comes to the dress here in a second, about how women should dress. It's a bit of, it's hyperbole. So we're going to see that. So keep that the text and we don't look at our past, our backgrounds and say, well, that's what I've always thought. And that's what I was taught by that one person. Well, I read this one book. Those are all great and informative things. But when we come to the Bible, we have to look at the Bible for the Bible. Okay. And then things that are hard to the scriptures to see, am I wrong? What's going on? And then we also look, if we're going to say things are cultural, then we have to say, well, how? How's that so? Does that flesh out? Does the rest of the Bible call that a cultural thing? Or does the rest of the Bible continue to call that something that stands the test of time for thousands of years? Because we could say, culturally, yeah, marriage. It's a cultural thing. Does marriage stand the test of time? I don't know. Cohabitation or whatever. Does mar marriage, we don't need to do that. And we're going to see that in verse 4, or teachers coming along saying, don't get married, don't have kids, there's no reason to do this. And he was, it was called a false teaching. You know, God said, prosper, multiply, fill the earth. Those are things that happen that we should continue to do. He wrote a whole letter to the church in Thessalonica that said they were all waiting for the end to come. They weren't like, well, we're just waiting for the second coming to happen. And Paul corrects them, knock it off. You have no idea when this is happening. Those are things that could, we could classify as cultural. I need to bookend this. We're going to start it in 8, and we're going to finish it in 15. And this, keep in mind, Genesis. We'll get seeing here is a picture of what happened. Eve um, being deceived and kind of tricked, but Adam being the one who's responsible for that happening. Paul is unpacking same way. He starts, remember, we started supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. He told them that a church, the foundation of the church is to pray. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Was it last week? The different kinds of prayer. He starts with that. You're not just prayer, and now he's saying men are not 
being responsible. And he tells where men pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So there's clearly been some communication between Paul and Timothy where the men are not leading in prayer in the church. They're not leading well. They're not lifting up holy hands. They're angry at each other. They refuse to lead the church. They're quarreling. They're bickering. They're fighting. They're not being a family of God. And they're, they're shirking their duties. The duty of the men in the church was to shore up the church with prayer. And they're not doing it. And we see in Psalm 24, which Paul would have had memorized, I'm sure, who may in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. In Psalm 26, I want around your altar, O Lord, that these men are not leading well. That because of the body of the church, the prayers that Paul just gave us a few verses earlier, saying that's the foundation of the church, that's what's important, the men have failed in their responsibility. So his first correction is to the men. Men, Step it up. You're failing in your responsibility, and this church is suffering because you refuse to lead. He then addresses the ladies. Verses 9. It's the same. When you see the word life, next week or the week after when we talk about deacons, that word life just as, as big an affront to God and the order of the church as the men refusing to lead in prayer, that they're quarreling with each other instead of living lives that would ask God to make them whole, that would ask God to lead them, and so they can then be the ones who are underpinning, underguiding, undergirding the church, being the foundation through prayer. And so he says, likewise. So this is just a big deal, and it's just a, a, a rejection of what God has intended when he addresses the ladies. Now this one I don't think anybody's got any problem with. We'll get to the tricky one in a minute. Respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, this is not saying that you can't have gold necklaces. This is not saying you can't have some pearls and you can't have some earrings and you can't braid your hair. Paul's address happening that it's not because the totality. We do see in 1 Peter 3 that there's some continued issues of women who are being dragged the world and they're trying they're showing off in church, they're trying to bring the trappings of of prestige and oh look at me and all those things into the church and it's causing conflict. There's also some understanding, especially in, when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, that the temple prostitutes, when they would come out of the temples at night, they would drop their hair, and it was a way of uh, showing them that they're available. If you were a temple prostitute in the city of Corinth, you served in the temple of Aphrodite, um, you were kind of sold, not kind of, you were, you, you essentially were there to serve Aphrodite, and then after already left the temple of Aphrodite, then you would then come into the town and sell your body into prostitution. And so when Paul says women need to keep their hair up, he's not saying that it's bad to have your hair down. He's saying don't, don't be mistaken for a temple prostitute. Like you, should, you need to separate yourself from the culture. And here we're seeing the same thing. He's not 
hair. Coming to church on Sunday morning doesn't mean you need to like shave your head before you come to get rid of your braids. It doesn't mean you need to smash all your necklaces or all your costly attire. Well, what's the definition of costly? Well, I don't know. Costly to me is different than costly to you. Costly to someone, if you read the whole, the picture of what he's getting at, is that these ladies were coming to church and they were continuing to walk in a way that the culture would dictate instead of someone who is professing godliness. They were too worried about outward appearance. They're too worried about... I'm not saying you can't take a shower and put on some deodorant and come to church. But when you are so captured by, I need to impress, I need to get all worked, dolled up, I don't know what the word, I, I feel awkward even talking like this. If you're coming to church to attract a man or to impress the other ladies with the adornments that you have, if your effort when you look in the mirror and coming to Sunday church is, I need to look good because my friends are going to look good and I don't want to embarrass myself because I don't look good. That's a terrible way of coming to church. It doesn't mean you can't buy some new clothes or go get your hair did. It means that you should care less what's inside, what's internal, how, how am I living my life, how, am, I, am I really doing a way to serve God, or is it all just for show? Is it just for show? And this, we could say, applies to men as well. If you're doing it just for show, then you're not approaching God and the church community in a proper way. So don't read this that Paul has just re removed braiding of hair. Because we see in 1 Corinthians, he says, don't drop your hair. Well, he doesn't say that here. We see what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. He says, he mentions the, the jewelry more than anything else. Be careful. This has been twisted. There have been churches before that have said, um, this is why you can't pierce your ears or have any jewelry. They've tried to flesh this out in an improper way. The heartbeat of the text is saying, ladies, don't be like the world. Now, why is he saying that? We'll get to that in just a second. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. This is the one I'm sure you all love. But I think you miss the very first three words. Well, four. It's a cultural revolution for the church to let women learn. And most people miss that. They go straight to the quiet and the submissive. Jesus was a revolutionary when it comes to women. He allowed them to be around him. He allowed them to learn. He allowed them to witness the miracles. He had them all around. There, it is not a mistake. If we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, if we believe that the story of God is given to us to be an example and to consistently teach us the truth, and if this was such a tool of the patriarchy, that men are just misogynistic, then why would Jewish men like John write that Mary was the first to get to the tomb? If this was just a twisted book to try to oppress women when we read things like this, then why would we see woman after woman who's clearly in sin, an adulteress, two different ones, one a serial adulterer, should have been dead by Jewish law, why would Jesus say they're forgiven? Why would he just let that go? 
He's a revolutionary. I hate to say it, but I'll say it. He's probably the closest thing to a feminist the Bible's ever seen. And Paul's right there with him. Because it's, we're, we're made as equal image bearers with equal dignity before God. And instead we miss the beauty of women being lifted up. The fact that women are allowed to be in the church and to learn is revolutionary. There is still an Orthodox Jewish devotional prayer, like the calendar you read, you have your daily devotions. One Jewish devotion that's read by a lot of Orthodox men, I'm going to paraphrase it, thank you God for not making me a woman. And if that's devotional that's existed for a couple thousand years for Paul to continue the, the spirit of what Christ did with his disciples to say, let a woman learn. That's revolutionary. To this day, when you go to Israel and you go to the Wailing Wall, you have the men and the women section. In certain Orthodox buses, women and men are divided on the buses. To this day. So don't miss the revolution that's happening in Paul's writing. Now, why does he say quiet? Well, they're in the middle of a church service. Now think culturally. Think what's happening. You have a church filled with people who are Gentiles and some Jewish converts. They're living in this spot. And you have a bunch of people who have never been to rabbinical school. Every male Hebrew child went to about the age of 12 to learn the Torah, to learn the scriptures. And now you have men and women mixed in this meeting. And you have a lot of by this revolutionary teaching of Christ. And they start to ask questions. They start to, hey, what's going on? They start to, and Paul's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Simmer down. We need to do some work here. There is still a biblical way, there's still a way from creation that order should exist in the church. And yet, learning, part of the family, honored, cherished, but you can't just do what you want. You can't just show up looking like the world, and you can't just show up questioning everything. There's still an order to, the, to what we're doing here. In 1 Peter 3, when you continue in the passage, when he talks about submissiveness, I think I, I'll read it to you. And he continues on talking be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is God, in God. This is how used to adorn themselves by submitting themselves to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening and then Sarah, that likewise word understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, people always hate that word, weaker vessel. If you flesh out in Greek, it means precious. It's not saying that a woman is weak, and don't give me those, well, you can't say weaker vessel, there's some women that can, are stronger than men, and yes, I get all that, that's why that's not what this says. Peter's saying that men should treat their 
Wives as precious. You should treat your wife as precious. And when you don't, you know what happens to you? Peter tells us, your prayers will be hindered. If a man doesn't treat his wife as precious, God will not listen to his prayers. That's terrifying. Then how spouses, men, if you don't treat them as precious and honor them and care for them, God will cut you off from himself. We don't see that given to women. We see God very clearly saying to men, if you don't treat your women as precious, he's going to cut off his communication with you. That's, that should terrify us, gentlemen. And it should encourage you, ladies, that if Peter's saying this, which is, has consistency with what Paul's telling us, there's a clear weight on men and how we address and how we treat women. We don't see the same weight on women. There's a responsibility there on us men. All right. Permissiveness. He's, he's not saying, and again, we'll see, we see later on, or we see in Ephesians, um, this doesn't mean that men lord over all women. We see Peter, he talks about having your wife, Husbands and wives, a wife submits to husband. It doesn't say that a, wife, a woman submits to all men. It doesn't say that. In this context, we're seeing Paul in the church context, in the gathering, in worship. Women, you need to be submissive because you aren't equipped. You don't have all of this. You don't have the knowledge. You don't let the leaders lead, is what he's getting at. He's not saying, he says to learn. But do it in a way that doesn't cause a distraction. And then here's where I start getting things thrown at me. Him using his apostolic authority. I'm a disciple. Given this power to teach, I'm to teach or to exercise authority over man. in this church, um, we don't agree on this, just so you know. Um, and I'm sure that you and I and some of us in the room will not agree on this. That's why I love this church. There are some things that we hold in very tight, closed hands. Um, I think if we denied the cross, if we denied the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we would have all kinds of serious issues, wouldn't we? We hold those very tight in our closed hands. Um, there are the other, which means that what you're about to hear is what I believe, in how men and women function, how church functions, how the structure should be. I've never denied that or hidden that from anybody. I remember it being asked in my interview when I came here nine years ago, and I was very open about it then, and I've been open about it since. There are people in our leadership and in this church that would fall in the term or fall in the, the spot of egalitarianism, which means that no offices in the church and no leadership position in the church should be reserved for any sex, that it is open to both men and women. 
And as we've been walking through the Constitution and trying to figure some of this stuff out, it's been made very clear that we are not on the same page in a lot of the leadership of our church. And so I'm not what I think, but just know that there are people sitting right here with us that would disagree with me, probably as passionately as I will land as a complementarian. And I hope, um, but I'm also not going to deny that I'm very certain that I'm right. <laughs> and I'm also very certain that some of you would say that you are certain in your rightness too. Okay? Now, what he's getting at, he's drawing us back to Genesis. And he's saying, I authority over man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now we're going to look at all this in context, and we're going to look at Genesis real fast too. Paul in Genesis, and the weight is on Adam. I believe for a long time that the responsibility of the fall is on Adam. He show you in a couple passages, Romans five in particular, that the well. I would argue that if you land in a more egalitarian role where men and women are equal in all responsibility, I think you're going to have to land that it's Eve's fault. And so that everything that's been done are said and with pictures of apples and paintings and women are the root of sin and all of that stuff, I would argue you probably have to flesh that out and say, yes, it's woman's fault. As a complementarian, I believe it's 100% Adam's fault, and I believe that's what the Bible teaches. So when Paul says, I do not pray a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, the key text and the key word is authority. So the in the next week or two, that in a church, um, the role or the And then anything that happens in the teaching, Sunday school, someone up here on stage, when Raina has taught us the word, all of that happens under the authority of the elders. Doesn't mean that if, like, doesn't mean that Priscilla Shire, and we're having a women's simulcast next week, that if you men want to listen to Priscilla Shire and you'd like to have the code, it'd be kind of weird if the only dude in the room next Saturday. But if you want to listen to her because she's a great teacher, there's nothing wrong with jumping in and listening to a, a female exposit the word. There's nothing wrong with that. But what Paul is getting at here is that there is a structure from Genesis of how leadership should work. And it's the same in the church as it is in the home. In the home, the responsibility and the weight is on my shoulders. It doesn't mean, and you all know my wife, doesn't mean that she's a dullard, doesn't mean that she doesn't have aptitude, doesn't mean that she isn't smart, doesn't mean that until she became a stay-at-home mom, she wasn't the primary breadwinner in her house, has nothing to do with intelligence, has nothing to do with aptitude to make money, has nothing to do with any of those things. Doesn't mean that a, a woman can't lead in society and in business and in politics, and doesn't mean any of those things. It means that the responsibility of the spiritual growth and leading in my home is on me because of Genesis, not because of Paul. And that fleshes out into the church. 
I don't think any of you in this room, if you were honest, would call me some kind of misogynist who diminishes the, the value of women. But I'm a firm complementarian. I would challenge you to find something I've said or done that says, you know, you need to be quiet because you're a woman and your voice isn't heard. I think Paul is telling us the same thing. It's about, it's about the fall and how the church is a reflection of how God intended it to be before the fall. And as we, as people of God, are trying to step closer to Christ and become more and more Christ-like than we have to, and even our leadership and our structure in the church, we're supposed to walk towards that, aren't we? I would say yes. So why Adam first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived? Well, he's getting at what we see in Genesis. So the woman saw the tree was good for food. We know Adam was made from the rib. And I, I run this joke every time, I, not every time, a lot of times when I do weddings, I think it's very clear that God has given this image of the rib for a reason. It's so that Adam and Eve are side by side in complementarian roles in marriage. And if God intended women to be elect, would have made Eve from either the right butt cheek or maybe a heel. And he did Eve from his rib, side If you read a little before this, that 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 in harmony with God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in the garden, and it was not good for him. He needed a partner. He needed a co-equal. He needed someone to walk by his side. And so that's why God created Eve from him. Did not create Eve from dirt like he created Adam, but instead, so there'd be a connection side by side, co-bearers of the dignity of God with different roles. And we see those different roles pop up in the fall. And it was at that delight. It was not an apple, there's no indication of that, but people like to paint apples, I guess. That the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. And they, were sewed, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now if I was going to land on a... You guys have both dignity, both authority. You both have your equal in all of these things. There aren't different roles. Then we would say it's Eve's fault. She took it, didn't she? She took it and she ate. She gave some to her husband. So this is where we get the picture of the great temptress. Eve. But we miss the one verse, the one part that says who was with her. He was right case where Eve takes the fruit, takes a bite on a trail and says, Hey Adam, here's some cool fruit. Try it. Isn't that the one we're not supposed to? Yeah, but it tastes good. Go ahead. What we see is they are together in the garden to being Surely it won't be that big of a deal. And apple out of her hand and said, Be gone from me, Satan. And he didn't. He allowed this to happen. We see in Romans chapter 5, 
Verse 12. For just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law is not counted where there is no law. Yet death even over those who was, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type. So Paul has put clear the weight of sin and the brokenness of the world on Adam. You continue down to 19. Therefore, condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For the many were made sinners, so the many will be made righteous. Now the but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. In Paul's whole treatise, from verse 12 of the fall, he doesn't mention Eve once. So if we're going to look at the totality of Scripture, especially what Paul has written, he is not taking this picture of men and women in the church and leadership in the church and what's happening in the worship services. He's not saying, women, be quiet. You ruin everything. That's not... He's saying the tension that you're having in the church is because you fail to see how God intended for relationships between husband and wife and men and women and in the church to function. And he traces it all the way back to Genesis. So it puts us in the place of... it's, And it puts us into the truth of Scripture that lasts for eternity. Because he draws... He draws... To be... With that bite of the fruit, he failed in his responsibility because he allowed his wife to step into that sin. He allowed her to listen to Satan. He didn't stop protect her. He ruined and broke the world because he refused to be a man. And instead, he slunk away to sew up a loincloth. So the way in 1 Timothy shows us what's happening in Ephesus. If failed nurturer, they're both how God intended them to be in the garden. That Eve was supposed to support and learn and be co-equals and co-part and help be part of this mission that God had them on, and instead, she went out on her own. She made a move. And as she made that move, in sin in this. But the weight is on Adam, not Eve. And that's what we live with, men. The weight is on us. The weight in our homes, the weight of how our houses run, the weight of financial stability and work and effort and guidance and leading, that's on us. That doesn't mean that we don't put our wives from our ribs 
I'm not good at this part. You need to lead in this part. I don't need, I need to free you up so you, you're smarter than me. I am not that smart. You need to take this lead with our children. You need to take this lead in business. But I this for you, I will. But it's on us. The weight is on us. Then Paul says, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is also one of those landmines. This does not mean that a woman who's never had children can't be saved. You're missing the whole point. Because Paul wrote extensively on how being single is way better than being married. If you can't because you're too weak, then get married. Paul has a very clear, like, singleness allows you to be free to work and honor God and to teach and to serve in ways that having children and a family can hold you back a little bit. Because once you have kids and you have a family, your responsibility is to them before it's to the church. So if you don't have kids, if you don't have a husband or a wife, then you're free. You're free to do whatever. And so this isn't Paul saying, and that's why we have to look at all of Scripture. Paul is better, and then turn around and say, well, women, if you don't have any kids, you're doomed. You have We take one out of context, you ruin the whole point. You ruin the whole flow. And so what Paul is saying here, two ways of looking at it. One, that in family lineage led to Christ. But in to the nurturing nature that Eve abdicated at the fall. If he starts with men in verse 8, and we end here in verse 15 with a, if you would fall into the flow of how you're made in Genesis, if you strive towards that, you will be saved. Accept, honor, walk in the truth as God has made you. To be a woman seeking after godliness and holiness and not the trappings of the world. He bookends from 8 to 15 the story of Adam and Eve's fall. You can't read 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15 without hanging out in Genesis. You'll miss it. You'll just get mad. He's trying to draw them back as to what it's supposed to be. And isn't that what we're all supposed to do? We're supposed to cast off sin. We're supposed to run from temptation. We're supposed to try to be, as we walk in holiness and walk closer to God, more and more as an image bearer of God and less and less of the flesh of the world. That's what we're supposed to strive for. And that's what Paul's driving here. And we also know that in chapter there's clearly some false teachers, I mentioned it earlier, they're saying, don't have kids. So this could all chapter 4 to say, knock that stuff off. And we see that teaching happening here in the world now. In Western civilization, um, Western civilization isn't... Um, they're a, not, I don't know the number, but there's a movement of people in the early 20s to 
um, sterilize themselves in the early 20s before they are even having a husband, a wife. They just don't, they're choosing at 18 to 22, 25 years old. I don't want kids. I'm not bringing kids into this world. I'm not going to have kids. There's all kinds of 22-year-olds having hysterectomies and all kinds of men having vasectomies at 22 and 23 and 24 years of age. Just saying, I don't want this. I don't want any part of this. This is nothing new. That's what's happening. And Paul's addressing it. And it's also what's happening in the church in Thessalonica. The world. Why bring kids into this world? And so Paul is also addressing that a little bit here. But the point of all that we have discussed is we see in Eve, because if you read through the rest of Genesis, when it comes to the fall, She is called Eve, which you flesh out in Hebrew, means hope. That in Eve, hope was to be born. And out of the lineage of Eve comes Christ, our hope. So if we're going to summarize this section, if you get past the point is that men and women are supposed to follow God in everything we do. You aren't living up to your responsibility. You're picking and quarreling and mad at each other instead of praying. You should be praying for this church. This church needs your prayers so it can grow. So that it can be healthy. It then says, world. Not just because it's you can't have name brands or whatever by your Gucci coach, whatever. I don't know what brands are. I'm, I'm not very stylish, so don't look to me for that. Thank you. <laughs> but what he's saying is you should care more about how you look to God and how you appear to God and if you're living a life that makes much of God and less about how people look at you. Like I, I cut my hair every week. I don't have much of it. I don't like it when it gets too bushy. So I trim it all down. Is that vanity? Maybe. But when I look in the mirror, I'm not like, you know, I need to make sure my hair is cut a certain way so that people will actually listen to me when I preach on Sunday morning. <laughs> it's probably more of a distraction than, right? What's your heart in dress? What's your heart in what you're doing and how you're coming to church? And so, after the dress thing, which is cultural, he then gets to more you're missing the point men are abdicating their responsibility and women you're not being the nurturing partners that should be happening in the congregation instead there's strife and tension between men and women in this church and there's a way that the order of how church is should help this flow and you need to rekindle that you need to come back to that and he ends with saying That as you grow in nurturing, as you understand coming together, that's how you're saved. That's how people are saved. That's how the church will flourish, is when you know your role. I would argue that that's in a very complementarian role. That men and women know who they are 
in the eye. That with confidence. And when you have constant chirping on both sides of whatever you think, that you're not good enough and you need to measure up and you need to, that when pride enters in, that I need these things. And I, you don't want a man leading out of pride and you don't want a woman leading out of pride. Both are dangerous. There should be complete acts of humility, wanting to honor God with our entire lives, and that fleshes out in church. And I have, I shared this with the leaders a few, well, about a month ago. I have deep, um, passionate desires for men to lead their homes. And I'll just be flat honest. Because the home I grew up in was not led by a man who honored God and honored his wife. There was chaos in the wake of my life. Between his affairs and the divorce and how he led in sinful ways in my life. How he pushed me towards sin. How my wife was, my wife, my mom was left abandoned. That was Freudian. How my mom was left abandoned and struggling and unable to, I f- her bitterness was never really washed away. The decisions that happened in high school that I made because I didn't have leaders in my home, a leader in my home that pointed me to Christ, terrible examples. I- I've seen firsthand when men don't step into the godly role given to them to lead their homes. And when that is lacking, there's chaos. So when I read these texts, I know some of you ladies will go, oh, that's oppressive. That's... I read them and go, where's the men? I don't read it as slight towards women. I read it towards challenge of men. And when they fail... We see abuse. We see corruption. We see destruction. We see chaos. And if you have been part or had that happen to you, ladies, I'm sorry. But it doesn't give us the space to say that it's not true. That men need to lead. And when men lead, I think women flourish. When men don't lead, I think women are crushed. Now I hope you don't come shank me after the service. <laughs> and I know we're beginning a conversation because now we've got all kinds of passages on elders and deacons to get through and it's going to get even better. And there's probably more sweat rolling down my back when we get to those two. The point is that God wants his church to flourish. And I think there's a way that he lays out for us to do that. And we can disagree and still be on the same team and still be a good family. But I want you to know exactly where I land. All right, let's pray. Hard texts like this that honestly stress me out. I don't know why that is. I think it's because I sit in a room filled with men and women who are my friends and my family, and I know we land on different, um, different ideas about texts like these. But I'm thankful um, that we can get through 
our disagreements and maybe land closer together than we think on a lot of stuff. But most importantly, I pray that we would all do the hard work of the exegetical study, that we want to honor you with a proper understanding of the word, that we want the word to read us instead of us reading the word. That we don't ever want to walk away from what you command or call us to in this love letter you wrote to us. And I pray that we would trust it. We trust it for everything else. We trust it for the story of salvation. We trust it for the, the assurance of our eternity in heaven. And so I pray that we would trust it for the organization of the church and for the, how um, relationships should function in the church as well. We can't just pick and choose. We have to walk through it all, Lord. So as we go about the rest of this day, I pray that we would take the words that Paul has given us and let, let him to send this to the church in Ephesus, that men should step up and lead and take the responsibility of the church on their shoulders and that women would flourish in that truth. Help us to walk side by side, leading together for others to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. During this last song of worship, if any of you have anything you want to pray about, something you'd like to share with the congregation, if you want to join this church family, um, we want to give you this time um, to share that with the rest of the congregation. Let's sing.